there's actually a button that says go live, which is crazy fun. And YouTube is not responding. Now it is. Hello, YouTube world. All right, so uh, we are going to do our best to get through, as I was telling Robin earlier, we're going to try to do our best to get through the travel section of Galatians. So we have this, this section of Galatians where he kind of chrono gives us chronology of his travels um, in 118 through 210. So we'll, we'll work through that. It's more versions than we usually get through in a week. I know we're, we're kind of overachievers this week, but we're going to get through that, that section of Galatians and then see how this kind of travel narrative leads us into the heart of the, of the book itself, which is really going to be the discussion then of how are we saved? So that's, that's really the, um, the question of the book is, is how are we um, saved, which again, saved is even a word you have to define. So how are we justified? How are we uh, made right with God? Um, yeah, so that's really the heart of the book. But but to get there, Paul is going to kind of give us this, this travel log, and we're going to discuss kind of what that means in the context of the New Testament and what that means for us as members of the church. So that's that's kind of what we have ahead of us to this evening. And so let's get to it. And then if you have any questions, we can answer those. So let's start with a prayer. I'm recording this in many different ways. So let's just let's do that. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, for our instruction, for our edification, and to correct us and to lead us according to your will. So we pray that you would be with us this night as we read your word, that we'd be led to the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in repentance, and also in faith that our sins are forgiven, and that we have eternal life with you through his death and his resurrection. So give us wisdom tonight by your Holy Spirit to read these words according to your goodwill for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, any questions from last week or any other week that you've been wanting to ask? One of these days, someone's going to show up with some some question, and you know, we'll be surprised and overjoyed. So, all right, I got a question for you. Yeah, it may not be from another way, but here's the question: When, um, when the when the creeds, Nicene Creed, was first translated into English, why was there not a comma inserted after the word virgin? Virgin is not a title Interesting. of a person, right? But I know there's some history behind it, but. Well, it actually. Mm. Mm. So you wanted to read conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin, comma, that is Mary, comma. Is so it, you want to take Mary as a non-restrictive clause defining that's modifying Virgin. Well, is it, but isn't that what we're talking about? Well, no, she is the, the Blessed Virgin Mary. That is her, her actual title um, in the church. So it's not confessing anything other than the fact that she was a virgin at the time of his birth. So, yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, when, remember, when the creed was translated, these, these, these things weren't an issue. Everyone agreed 
mm-hmm. on the roll of the bus. Well, everyone within within Orthodox Christianity agreed in the role of the, of the Virgin Mary. So the issue at the time of the creed was actually um, the issue of Theotokos, okay, that, or Theotokos, um, that she could actually be properly called the mother of God, okay? And the Orthodox theologians were saying that she should be called the mother of God, and the, the heretics were saying she should not be called the mother of God. Um, and so this is really the issue of the time of the creed, not so much whether or not it's a title of Virgin Mary. And, um, but the, the classic debate on this is that it's not a question of, of defining who Mary is, but a question of defining who her child is. And so this is actually a Christological debate was that is the, is the son born to, to Mary truly God or not? And so the church was confessing that the, the woman known as the, the Virgin Mary was properly the mother of God. And again, that's not a confession of Mary, it's a confession of Jesus. So that was actually the issue of the creed. That's why some of these sensitivities weren't really um, elucidated in that. Um, and so what you see, if, if, you, if you pay attention to current Christianity and the things that are going on in our world, uh, the Pope just changed the Lord's Prayer. Um, there's, there's actually a couple essays online right now for a couple different denominations that are working on new hymnals and they're writing about changes to the creed, um, whether or not it's proper to retranslate the creed, um, to insert commas, to capitalize or lowercase words that have traditionally been one way or t'other. And part of the, part of the discussion when we talk about words or grammar of the creed is that you're also messing with the catholicity of the confession and remember catholic is simply the word means unity one so when you start changing the words of the creed you're now changing the creed that christians have confessed in unity um, not just now but but for a lot of history so that's part of the issue when you start talking about um changing the words of the creed is remember the creeds are not inspired biblical text so we're not we're, we're not changing the word of god but they are um, kind of the church's public confession of what the scriptures teach. And to, to start messing with the creeds is something that you, can, you need to do in, in light of the history of, of Christianity, as well as in the light of what's currently going on in our world. Does that make sense? Um, it does. Yeah. Yeah. So I understand what you're saying. And Sure, that, we could argue for that. That's fine. Mary was a virgin at the time that she conceived and gave birth to Jesus. That's really what we're confessing. And that God chose her in that role. Yep. Good. Fun. Anything else? Okay, so let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Like I said, we're going to read a little travel log of Paul here. Um, so let's just read it and then we'll talk about it. So chapter one, verses 18 through 24, which is really just verses 18 through the end of the chapter. So Galatians one, verses 18 through 24. Someone could read that for us. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with, with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. 
in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia. Sure. And I was still unknown in person to the purchase of Judea and are in Christ. They only were hearing it. It said he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Okay, great. Um, so like I said, a little travel log. We're going to meet some characters. We're going to talk about some things. Uh, most of the stuff you guys know inherently from, from reading the Bible and just being around scripture. So nothing overly shocking or new, but we'll just kind of work our way through on why he brings these things up. So number one, why does Paul explain his history with Peter and James? So remember Cephas, hmm, this is fun. So Cephas is simply the Aramaic way to say Peter. Okay. So Cephas is Peter. Okay, so Peter is a Greek word. Cephas is an Aramaic word. Okay, um, we have this several times in the in the Bible. Um, you have Thomas is Didymus. Okay, Thomas is his Aramaic name. Didymus is his Greek name. It's literally the same word. It's just translated. Okay, um, this is not the case for Saul and Paul. They actually mean different things, but but they sound similar. So you might've had Saul and Paul might've had two different names. One of them a Hebrew name and one of them might've been his Roman name or his, yeah, his Hellenistic name. But Cephas and Peter are literally just the same words in two different languages. Um, same with Thomas and Didymus, same, same word. Um, we have the same thing now, Ivan and John, same thing. Yeah, just different languages, okay? Um, so, so that's, don't, don't worry about the word Cephas there. It's just Peter and Paul, for some reason in Galatians calls Peter Cephas several times. And then in chapter two, I think it's verse seven where he switches to Peter for a couple of times. And then he goes back to Cephas in verse nine. So I don't know. I don't know. So is it because they were both just, they were both that? disciples that they give, give some credibility to Paul? Yeah, so right. So the reason he mentions all of this is he's, he's going to say his point so far is I didn't learn this from people. I'm not preaching this gospel to please people. I received it from Revelation. But now he's going to say, however, my gospel that I'm preaching is in line in concert with the church, with the leadership of the church. I'm not doing this as a rogue preacher or somebody who's contrary to the church. I'm doing this with the blessing of the church, right? I'm doing this in concert with the church. This is, this is right preaching and solid doctrine, okay? So what we learn in this is that it is important for us as Christians to acknowledge that we belong to a larger group than just what I want to do or even what we want to do. Okay, so we could say, well, we're going to start the, the congregation of Tuesday night Zoom Bible study, and we are our church, okay, and you're going to call me as your pastor and pay me a giant salary. No, please don't do that. Don't do either of those things. And then um, we're going to say, and then we can make up our own doctrine, because we are so smart in this little group, we're going to correct the the doctrine of the church and we're going to be this awesome little church. And then we say, well, and then we're part of the church. 
And the answer to that is no, don't do that. We do not want to do that. We, we actually don't ever want to become our own little group. What we want to do is always see us as part of the church. And the church is, is kind of always expanding out into this eternal body of Christ. And this is, this is a very important thing. Um, and, and it's actually in the New Testament is that when we think about church, you know, you say, you say, well, um, you know, what stinks about COVID is that, is that we can't meet at church for Bible study. Right. And so obviously we need a building, but, but that, that word building, even there, what it really means is the church can be used to describe a local congregation. That's kind of the word we use. Okay. So this is, um, so St. Luke's Lutheran Church, Manhattan, Kansas, right? That's a, that's a church. That's a congregation. But this congregation is also part of the church in Kansas. And, and what we find in the New Testament is that this, this idea of local church being part of a local group of larger churches, which is part of a, a, a larger group of localized churches, is all present in the New Testament. Um, as a matter of fact, look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 2. Okay, so, so right in this very letter, it starts off, Paul, an apostle, right? And then, and all the brothers who are with me, and then to the churches in Galatia. So now he's talking about the individual congregations, that there were individual congregations in Galatia, right? But then we also read, like when we studied Ephesians, we read about the church, okay? The body of Christ. And, and so we have this idea that there's, there's local churches and then there's also a giant church. But in between the giant church and local churches, there's actually gatherings of local churches. So like in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, when you come together, and he's probably talking about the churches in Corinth, when you all come together for the Lord's Supper. And, and what we have is, so we have local congregations, and then we have kind of a larger group of congregations. And then what we have is kind of a the, the church as a an overall organization, meaning the church can meet together to discuss the doctrine of the church. And so you think of that like in Acts 15. And then you have yet another step, which is the church, the invisible church, the eternal church, the body of Christ that exists outside of time and space. And, and so when we say church, we, we kind of want to keep all of this in mind all the time. And what we find out in the New Testament is that what a local congregation does actually affects all the layers of the church. And all the layers of the church should affect what each congregation does. And, and here's the thing. In Christianity, we don't want to be a lone ranger. We don't want to be out on our own. 
we want to be part of the body of Christ. Okay. So part of what we're doing is, is we're saying, let's make sure our local congregation is in step with the church. So what Paul is saying is, here I am. I'm an apostle. I received the gospel from Revelate or by revelation from God, but I don't want to be a Lone Ranger apostle. I want to make sure that everyone understands that I'm in line with the church. So I'm going to go to Jerusalem where the big church is located and talk to the leadership of the church and get acquainted with them. Does that make sense? May I ask a question? Sure. Or make a comment. This is a totally new concept in the world, isn't it? That you have various churches, various congregations throughout an area because before the temple was the center of Jerusalem and the Jewish faith. And then you had state-sponsored religion like the Egyptians and their idols. So this would be totally new. Kind of, not, not totally. Um, because remember in the New Testament time, they had synagogues and synagogues were really local congregations, literally synagogue is like gathering together. So they were local congregations, which is also gathering together. They were local gatherings of people who gathered to read the Torah, to read the scriptures together, who couldn't go to temple. So they would see them as little local um, gatherings that, that are part of this larger religion or larger faith that met also in the temple or eventually in the temple. So this was already starting to happen kind of in the synagogue model. Okay. But didn't they defer to the central church? In, yeah. Uh, the and that's exactly right. So, so in matters of doctrine and practice, what they did is they, 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 um, they said, so like, like this, this is exactly what we're talking about. The local church is going to make sure that everything we do is in line with the main, the main church. And that's actually what we do when we talk about right doctrine or correct doctrine or orthodox doctrine or the creeds is that we're saying the goal is for all of us to be teaching the same thing. And that same thing is the truth as revealed in scripture. That's the goal. Well, the apostles had to be on their toes to make sure everybody was not straying off course. Yes, and that's exactly what you read in the book of Acts, is that when the apostles hear that things are happening, they go check it out to make sure that what's happening is right. And a lot of times what they find is not good, so they fix it. They correct them, and they say, no, 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 that's not right. That's not what Jesus taught us. This is what Jesus taught us. Okay, so this is actually part of the movement then is that we're going to have Paul um, actually saying, I, I received this by revelation and because I want to be part of the whole church, I went to Jerusalem to meet with the church. And that's represented by James and Cephas. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yep. You're welcome. Okay. Any other questions or thoughts? 
I do have one kind of question or comment on that, but I, I know it's already a little bit of a bunny trail, which is um, it seems like the early church, especially in this account of Paul in particular talking to, you know, Peter and James uh, is, is almost what we would recognize as a synodical polity, you know, where each congregation sort of, it's based on the doctrine and on the agreement of doctrine, but over, over the, over the early uh, course of the church history, it evolved into an actual, um, uh, you know, m m something closer to the papal polity that the Roman Catholic Church has now. And I wonder, do we know, at, uh, and, and this may not be an answerable question, I don't know, but do we know at what point, because it, it seems like, you know, here you have somebody, Paul, who is outside of that hierarchy coming in and, and by the rule of doctrine and by the rule of, you know, this is the revelation, this is the word of God. But let's make let's make our changes. Let's make our revisions. But eventually, it became more hierarchical, where there's like the bishop, and the bishop is in charge of the other bishops, and then those bishops are in charge, and it becomes more of a top-down sort of polity. Um, is, is that something that is documented? Do we know about the evolution of that, or is that more of a? I, I like think a... I think that there's there's two answers to that. I'll give you both. The answer is is um, you actually have that evidence in the New Testament already where by the time the apostle John is writing, he is the bishop of the church. He's the last of the living apostles. And, you know, he's the final authority. He, what he says goes there. There's no one to question him because he's the last living apostle. So you already have a structure in the church where the, the living apostles, and you have this, and this is recorded in the church fathers to talk about this, that the, the living voices are the authoritative voices. And everything flows from them. So Paul, if you read in the book of Titus, Paul appoints other pastors to, to where he leaves places. He appoints pastors to stay there for him. So you already have these pastors that are serving under Paul as the apostle, right? And then these other pastors are teaching other guys and kind of sending them out under them. So you already have an apostolic structure in the in the New Testament times already. Now, not every scholar would agree with me on this, but but a conservative reading of scripture would say that this this office of the holy ministry structure is already in the new testament times um what happens though is and this is what you're going to read on the internet is that when christianity becomes the official religion of the roman empire the structure of the church starts reflecting the government structure so you actually have more of a hierarchical structure not based on doctrine and calls but based on authority and position and that's what the church then, um, what would be the right word to say, struggles with? <laughs> well, well, in fact, and that even becomes a big issue for the Roman Catholic Church for a long time, is that they then want to, or they they maybe by fiat or whatever, become a political entity appointing kings and and those sorts of things. And then that's something that they want to hang on to for a long time. And and, and it really does get mixy like that too. Well, so and we, we can't be too quick to point fingers. I mean, the Lutheran Church... Luther was protected by his prince, and um, a lot of what Luther did was because his prince ordered Saxony based on Lutheran ideals. And so there always is this interplay between politics and religion and how does it work, and there's always a, a temptation in the church um, for people who have power to see themselves as people with power. And it's always a temptation. Now, let's be clear that even though I said that the structure of um, clergy and, and, and apostles, we talked about this in, in Ephesians chapter four, that he actually gave certain men in certain positions of the church. But that does not mean that the Bible teaches 
a certain polity or organizational structure. So we actually do not teach that the Bible um, commands a certain structure for the church. Whereas Presbyterians are actually, they actually teach that there's a, there's a system of presbyters, of overseers. Episcopalians have an Episcopal structure. Presbyterians have a presbyter structure, okay? So that's actually the way they read the New Testament and the also the Holy Ministry. Um, obviously the Roman Catholic Church sees in Peter the first Pope and they go from there. But we read the New Testament and say that, that the order of the church is actually that um, God, Christ, and then when Christ goes to his church, he does that through the office of the holy ministry, which we would call a pastor, right? But remember that, that when we're doing this, the pastor is actually part of the church and that the only authority that the pastor has over the church is the authority of his call into the office of the word of God. Which okay? comes from the church. It's which comes from the church. So it's not a personal authority. It's not indelible character. It's not something about the man, but the authority that your pastor has is the authority of the very word of God that he speaks. So if he stops speaking the word of God, not your pastor, right? He's, he's now out of the office. Okay. So that's what we try to maintain is that we try to say, God does have in mind an office of the Holy Ministry as a structure of the church, but it's not in a, a human-oriented hierarchical structure with power. It's more the authority of the preached word of God. Okay. Thank you. That's very thorough. Yep. Okay. So Paul's trying to do, he's trying to do this, right? He's trying to submit himself to the church and yet be in all this kind of stuff. So that's, that's what we're going to read about. He does it again in chapter two. And we'll, we'll read more about it in, in the rest of chapter two. So number two, question number two, how is faith used in verse 23? So Paul says, they only were hearing it said, he used to persecute, uh, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So what does the word faith mean there? Means the content of the doctrine that was handed to him. Yeah, somehow this word faith doesn't mean I believe in Jesus, but it means like Christianity or the content of what we believe. And so this is an important thing too, is that just as we see these layers of church in the New Testament, we also see that the word faith it can be used to mean what you believe, what I believe, but most often what it really talks about is the object of our faith, that which we believe. And so most often, when, even when we talk about believing, that you may believe this, really the focus is on the thing that you're believing in. And most importantly, the object of our faith is Christ Jesus, right? It's his death and resurrection. It's the doctrine of who he is. And um, you think it's the Chronicles? Oh boy, now I got comments I got to read. This is fun. Metonymy, yeah, or synecdoche, depending on how you want to 
look at it, which which angle you want to look at. So so yeah, exactly right. It can be seen as a metonymy, which means this one word stands for the whole thing. Okay. So the classic classic example of metonymy is you is a car driving down the road. And you say that's a nice set of wheels, right? So you, you, the wheels actually part of a larger thing. Um, again, so that became metonymy. You can argue which is which, right? Go ahead, have fun. But but what we do see is that is early remember this book is written in the mid 40s let's just say it's 45 to 48 something like that i'm i'm happy with the mid 40s as a date for this book but already by that time paul is identifying a a body of doctrine as the faith right there's something that he's teaching there's something that people out there are identifying as the faith right and it's not judaism it's Christianity because it's the thing that Paul was seeking to destroy by persecuting Christians. And this is very important. You guys might not got grasp it yet, but, but this is very important because a lot of people will teach you that when the new Testament was written, there was no body of doctrine. It was just a bunch of people kind of just writing stuff and they were making stuff up and Christianity hadn't come about yet, but that's not true. When Paul is preaching already 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus, he can identify the content of his preaching as the faith. And he can identify the existence of the Christian church as the faith. Okay. So early on, this is already an accepted body of doctrine. This is an already an accepted reality of people believing the same thing. Remember, so it's pointing to the object of our faith. And very early on, we see this concept that what Paul is going after in his both his persecution and then now in his preaching is actually the faith. This this whole idea of that which is believed, which is primarily going to be focused on Christ. Okay, does that make sense? It does, and I think that's pretty critical because uh, it's not just a question of was there a Christian church, but a lot of times that idea that oh there was no there was no body of doctrine is very often uh, reflected in uh, an attack that says that well Christ wasn't considered divine until three hundred years later or or something like that. So it's not just the fact that there was an organized body or that there was a church of people, but that Christ is the Son of God is mm -hmm. is kind of tied into that too. Exactly. That's exactly right. And that's why it's so important that the object of this faith is actually death and resurrection of Jesus, the full confession that he is both God and man, the son of the son of God, son of man. Um, and that's that's early on. Um, the other thing I want just to remind us all of us as, as we talk about this is that this has not changed. This is the faith that you are a part of. This is the church that you are a part of. This is the church that we are a part of together. And when you read these books, you could say, well, you know, Galatians was written almost 2000 years ago now. I don't know this guy named Paul other than this book. Why do I care? We went to Jerusalem. But, but part of the idea is that this is the church. This is, this is the body into which you were baptized, the body into which you've been called through your faith. This is actually who you are. And, and this is the, the, the family of believers that we belong to. And this is what unites us. And it, it unites us across time and space. It unites us across language and culture. It unites us over, you know, whatever you want to put up there. All who believe in Christ are united in this one true faith. Okay. 
I, I would yeah. like to add one more comment there too, which is that I think there's a really important personal evangelical component to that as well. I think we all, at least in my family, I can say that I have family members who say, you know, I don't need to go to a church. You know, I can, I can be at home and read my Bible. And, and it's true. I mean, it's true. But from the very, from the very beginning, um, Christianity is not expressed in scripture as a solo. I mean, you said it earlier, you know, Paul doesn't decide to be a, a maverick Christian out there. Right. Um, scripture describes consistently the faith as being a body of people, a body of doctrine. Um, and, and so I just wanted to mention this because I, I feel like that's something that, that has latched on for me as something that you can say to family who you, you know, you might say, come to my church and they'll be like, oh no, you know, I don't need your church because they're afraid of some label or they're afraid of, you know, going to a church and it's unusual for them or something. But I think it's something that you can actually just straight up say to people, the Bible doesn't describe Christianity as a solo effort. And, and I just kind of wanted to mention that because I feel like you can say that to someone who you love, who, who may be hesitant to go to church. Right. And that's, that's a, that's an encouragement to people who are scared of going to church or don't know what church is like or whatever, is that this is actually part of the whole thing is that yes, read the scriptures and hear it and stuff, but, but that's really drawing us together, drawing us together as a church. And that's, that's part of the struggle right now with all this COVID stuff is that the, the very impetus of our faith is to come together and yet <laughs> coming together is not that easy. So um, that's, that's the struggle that, that to be totally blunt with y'all, since we're all friends, we should be struggling with, it should be hard on us to not be able to come together. That should be something that we're, we're crying out to God and saying, how long, right? We, you call us together and now we're, we're apart. What do we do with this? Right. That should be something we're struggling with because we're pulled, we're called together. Okay. Number three, look at verse 24, the last verse of chapter one, and they glorified God because of me. So I don't know how to ask this question. But how is verse 24 the goal of every servant of Christ? It's why we were created, to worship him. Exactly. So this is kind of the goal of humanity, right? Is to, is to glorify God and then um, kind of, I'll be totally blunt, the, the, the high point of my life would ever be if, if anybody would say, you know, like, like glorify God. If anything I could do, whatever result in God being glorified, that's the height of, of existence. And so I just, I think this is one of those verses where we really hear, hear Paul saying, you know, it's not about me and traveling. It's not about me as an apostle. It's not me and my gospel. It's really all the things that I'm doing here is to bring glory to God. And, and in my mind, I hear John the Baptist saying, you know, he must increase and I must decrease. It's, it's that constant reality that, that we all say, let's, let's keep pointing people here, right? Let's keep pointing people here. Um, not, not here, but, but to Christ. And, and this is Paul really saying that as, as the apostle, right? It's not to glorify me as an apostle. It's, it's to bring glory to God. So just kind of the goal of our faith and, and it's a reminder that that's, that's really our focus. Okay. Any questions on that? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I still have this mantra that continues to go through my mind. The glory of God is the salvation of man. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And, and that's exactly right. So you keep, keep that in mind and that's, that's how it all, it all ends up here. Right. It's exactly right. Scott, did you have something? Yeah. Um, the uh, verse 19 where it says, James, the Lord's brother, isn't there some controversy 
in some areas about if Jesus had Mary had other children. Is this language You're so controversial? Clear. Okay. <laughs> Does this language make it pretty clear in the Greek that this was his half brother or not? So the the Greek word for brother is is brother. Um, there's really no way around it. When the New Testament calls Jesus brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters, it uses the word for brothers and sisters. It doesn't use the word for cousin or um, um, far relatives in any way. It simply uses the word um, brother and sister. So I, I will quote a Lutheran theologian that isn't me, um, one of our seminary professors, who says, a natural reading of the New Testament would lead you to believe that Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus. So that's that's what I will say to that, is I agree with that, that a natural reading of the New Testament text would lead you to believe that Mary was a virgin at the time of the conception and birth of Jesus. And then following that, Joseph and Mary were, were truly married, and that resulted in the birth of other children to Joseph and Mary. I would, I would submit that as the most natural reading of the New Testament. I'm aware that other, some of my best friends, as a matter of fact, someone I was just texting this afternoon would disagree with me and say that Mary had to remain a virgin. But I think a most natural reading of the, of the New Testament says that she had children um, with Joseph and that those are Jesus's brothers and sisters. Um, there's absolutely nothing in the Greek here that would that would lead you to lead to read this as anything other than brother of the Lord. Now, the if you're going to say that these can't be physical brothers, um, then the the prevailing thought on this taking this word as truly brother would be that these are Joseph's children from before he and Mary were married, so that Joseph was a widower and who had children, and then these were brothers and sisters of Jesus. Um, so that is that is the way that a lot of people will take this, is that these are Joseph's children. Um, okay, but I, I don't know that that's actually the most natural reading of the text. Very good, thank you. Is that, everybody okay? Just a minute. I don't want to freak anybody out. Well, if you go to Mark 6, verse 3, it lists the brothers. Yeah, I mean, so you have explicit text where it talks. I mean, yeah, this isn't this isn't rare in the New Testament, right? So let's go to Mark six, which actually is a text that has some some strange um, issues with it. But but yeah, in Mark six, three, it's a it's a fun it's a fun text. Um, so uh, is this not the carpenter? Which is an interesting question about Jesus, right? Not the carpenter's son, but Mark actually says it's not this the carpenter the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us. See, so there's really no reason to read that as anything, but the, but historical narrative about Jesus and his siblings within the text, within the text. Now reasons outside the text would force some people to read that differently, but, but I'm saying, and, and, I can certainly point to other theologians who would agree that a natural reading of the Greek text would say that this means exactly as you just read it. That Jesus was, he grew up as a carpenter. He learned the carpenter trade from his father. He was known as a carpenter. He must've done some carpentry work at some point. Um, he was known as the son of Mary and he had brothers and sisters. 
and we would have their names. So that's how I read it. Yeah, that's what I always kind of thought or was taught. And only recently I have I met people who don't subscribe to that. So thank you for addressing. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, so now as as I talked to um, somebody about before, uh, there are at least three Jameses in the New Testament. <laughs> if you're going to look at 119, there are at least three guys named James in the New Testament. And, and it's not that hard. We'll just we'll just go over really quickly. There's James, the brother of John. So the son of, of Zebedee, right? So Zebedee's sons are James and John. And that James is kind of the biggie of the, of the 12 apostles. You have Peter, James, and John, those big three. There's another James that is also one of the 12, the son of Alphaeus. And so you have the important James and the less important James. So you have James the greater and James the lesser. Those Both those Jameses are in the list of the 12 apostles. Okay. Then you have James, the Lord's brother, who is here. And also in Acts, um, especially 12 through 15, where he's the leader of the Jerusalem church. That seems to be James, the Lord's brother, probably also the author of the book of James at the end of the New Testament. Okay. Now there might be, don't, I don't want to keep any up at night, scared to death or anything. There might be a fourth James running around. There just might be because no one's totally certain that all the references to the James is all fit in one of those three. There might be a fourth James, but remember James is cert is simply the name Jacob. It's, it's the, it's the same word as Jacob. Jacobos is James. So if you're, if you're thinking Hebrew dudes, right. And you're going to name your guy after a biblical guy and Jacob is a pretty prominent name. So. That's why there's so many Jameses running around. It's just a common name. Okay. So, so this James he's talking about is James, the Lord's brother, who became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. Okay, cool. That's everything you know about biblical Jameses and then a little bit more. So let's read Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Then after, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brethren secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be in, influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, 
they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, thank you very much. So this is a fun little narrative. Uh, number four, why did Paul go up to Jerusalem? Revelation. It was revealed to him. Because of a revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaim, right? So he's going up because of a revelation to go tell them the gospel that he proclaims so that in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain, okay? So he's going to make sure that what he's teaching is the faith that is being taught by the whole church. So again, he goes up to meet Peter to get acquainted with him to kind of get in line with the church. And then later, between 11 and 14 years later, he goes up again to Jerusalem. I should say actually 10 to 13 years later. He goes up again to Jerusalem in order to make sure that he's not working against the church. Okay, he's going to make sure that he's not working against the church. But what he's doing is in concert with the church okay now um you're gonna see how this actually works out as chapter two keeps going because he's setting up the rest of chapter two for us here because he's going to actually have a confrontation with peter and so we're setting this up right he's getting us to that moment does that make sense it is, it is sort of interesting. It's not one of the questions uh, in the study for tonight, but it is interesting, this, this whole little bit about uh, false brothers and, um, you know, uh, spying out our freedom in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. And I, I wonder if, if that, I've always assumed that that was related to the, to the Judaizer type situation. I mean, I don't know about false brothers or if he's talking about some other faction, but it seems to me, it has seemed, or at least I have understood this to mean and, and he even talks about uh, Titus, you know, not being circumcised where that was a big issue. And I, I just sort of perceived all of this to be related. Is that the understanding in this passage? Yeah. So so the false brethren and those who are spying out of freedom are kind of usually seen as a foreshadowing of what he's going to confront in two and three, um, where these people have been saying that uh, Paul is saying all you need is Jesus. And we're going to say, well, no, you need Jesus plus the law. And so Paul is, most people read this as Paul kind of explaining that there were these false brothers that were saying, um, we've heard Paul is preaching this and uh, that's nice, but you got to add to it works. You got to add to it the works of the law. And he's saying that's taking away your freedom. They're taking away your freedom in Christ, which again, Galatians 5 will address that, right? The freedom we have in Christ. So um, a lot of people see it as introducing what you correctly identified as the Judaizers, right? The people come in and bring this idea of this, this Jewish works of the law into Paul's gospel. Um, so yeah, most people see it that way. There's, there's a lot of unanswered questions in Galatians about what exactly was being taught. And there's a lot of scholarship today that is suggesting different things than that in traditional interpretation. But I think, like, like I said, with the whole Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus brothers questions, I think it's easiest to read the text 
as we have it in Galatians and, and let the text explain to us what, what Paul is talking about. And I think if we do that, we will see that the, the traditional interpretation is probably going to lead us in a good direction. It is interesting also in the context of the first chapter, like we talked last time or whenever about the how, how he goes right into, I can't believe that you guys are doing this. Here he's he's basically saying false brothers by so by implication, you know, he's sort of saying like, hey, you could be on the road to false brotherhood here yourselves. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yep. Okay. Now. Here's the issue. We got to why Paul went to Jerusalem as far as the church and Peter and John and James, that kind of stuff. But but here's the question. Why Jerusalem? Uh, as far as I know, Jerusalem is still where all of the apostles are still hanging out. I mean, it would be essentially the church center. Is that accurate? Okay. All the apostles are still hanging out in Jerusalem. Now, um, I, hmm. so, so I just don't want us to miss this, that God's church is still in Jerusalem at this time. This is 43 to 4 or 45 to 48. So this is 15 to 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, and the church is still located in Jerusalem. We get this idea that Jesus spoke the Great Commission and everyone went out, as though the disciples thought the, com the command was to go. But guess what? They all... They stayed home. Stayed. Okay. So we got to make sure we don't pretend that the Great Commission is something it isn't. It isn't a great command to go. It is a great command to teach. And the going isn't something that the apostles thought was the most important part of the command. The apostles actually stayed in Jerusalem. Okay. And for a very long time, Jerusalem was actually the center of the church physically. Do you know why Jerusalem stopped being the physical center of the church? Because they were run out eventually. Yeah, because the Romans kicked them out. It wasn't some missionary zeal. It was because the Romans kicked them out. Well, it's fascinating too because I mean, all of Paul's apostles, uh, all of his epistles are like written on the road, basically. Mm -hmm. So, do, do you feel like that indicates a difference in attitude between Paul and the established apostles in the church? I mean, may maybe we're making more of this distinction between Paul and, and and the others than maybe there is to make of it. But he, it seems like he's like missionary journey, missionary journey, missionary journey. He's been in Corinth. He's been in Galatia. He's he's going to Rome. So, so the reason this is, I bring this up, the reason it's important is because it's not anti-missionary and it's not saying we shouldn't go out and spread the gospel. We should. I, I totally believe that. But, but my point is, is that in the, in the beginning of the church, they actually stayed and, and spread the gospel immediately around Jerusalem and were focused primarily on Jews, right? Paul is the one who takes the gospel to the Gentiles. And, and this movement of the church from focused primarily on the 12 apostles and the ministry to the Jews to Paul and the ministry to the Gentiles is then what leads us to 
kind of the spread of Christianity historically from really the, the early 60s on. And this is the phenomenal thing, is that for the first 25 to 30 years of the church, it was really a local organization, just in Jerusalem with a couple offshoots here and there, right? And then in the mid, in the 60s, the church gets spread out. And from 60 AD until 300 AD, the church goes from a small group of 12 guys and whoever they can get to listen to them to the dominant religion in the world. Okay. Now, if you've ever read any history, that's phenomenal. Okay. And this is part of the part of the growth of the gospel is that it stays and percolates for a little bit. Well, they get stuff straightened out. They got to get their, they got to get all this stuff straightened out, right? They got to get their understanding of who's preaching and how you're preaching. They got all their, their doctrine is solidified. And they're coming together and meeting about the Gentiles and how does this work? And then once they go, right, once they go, this thing just takes off like wildfire. But don't forget that even while they were staying, we have, we have accounts of thousands of people being converted in one day. So what happens is Jerusalem ends up being the center of the church where the apostles are primarily located, at least where they're starting from. Thomas goes out from Jerusalem to India. Other people go out to other places, but they're still primarily thought of as locating in Jerusalem and just going out from there. Okay. And then it just starts taking off like wildfire. And that's what we'll read. Or if you read the rest of the New Testament, that's kind of what happens in all this. All right. So number five, to whom was Paul sent? So look at, at go. So that's this all that kind of stuff. Um, false brothers and got there, but look at verse seven. Okay. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, okay? So it's not just that they're Gentiles. It's actually that these are people who are not obeying the law of Moses, okay? And this is going to be a big issue is that Paul is sent to the Gentiles, which is fine, but they're, they're not following Moses, Mosaic law. Are there non-Jewish people who do follow the yes, law of Moses? There are. They're called proselytes. So you have God-fearers and proselytes. And God-fearers were typically known as those who listened to the word of Yahweh and might even believed it personally, but did not follow the law of Moses. Okay, they're also called proselytes of the gate. They were not allowed actually in the temple. There are other people who actually were fully proselytized. So they would be circumcised, they would follow the food laws, and they would actually be welcomed into the community of Israel, even though they were naturally born Gentiles. I mean, there are a lot of references in the Old Testament to sojourners and even converts, and we have the Magi, you know, here we are, and I mean, we're almost yeah. to Christmas. Um, exactly. So there, there are people, I just, it, I guess it strikes me that there would be enough of those people that they would be reckoned. Yeah, they're thought about. So, so Paul is actually sent not just to Gentiles, but to Gentiles who are not following the Mosaic law. And this is the big issue is he's saying, guys, I'm preaching to people who aren't circumcised and I am preaching to them the Messiah. Okay. 
this is going to freak everybody out. And this is really one of the big issues in the entire New Testament is, can you be saved if you are not obedient to the laws of Moses? And the answer ends up being, yes. So much so that the book of Romans actually asks the question, can you be saved if you do obey the laws of Moses? And the answer is? I mean, you can, but it's not going to help you. <laughs> it's Well, exactly right. So you can, but not because you're following the laws of Moses. The only thing that gets you saved is faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? So we're not going to even worry about that. Okay? Right? So exactly right. Um, Donna, you said no, because if you're, if you're saying I'm saved because I'm following Moses law, uh -uh, no way, but you're saved because you're in Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. Okay. And this becomes then the real thrust of Paul's gospel is that the measure between a, a person and God is not following the law. That's not what determines it. The measure between God and a person is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and faith in that. Okay. So this is what's going on in Galatians two in this visit. And can I, can I oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, um, were you finished? Sure. I thought, um, the, I, is the uncircumcised, is that contextual on what it means? And I was thinking back to Acts 11, where they accused Peter of going to uncircumcised men and ate with him, who was Cornelius, who was a Roman. Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh, that means he's a Gentile. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so, an uncircumcised could also mean Jews who weren't found in the law of Moses. No, 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 no. They're Gentiles who were also not circumcised versus Gentiles who might have been circumcised in order to become part of the Jewish community. Oh, I'm sorry. I yeah, guess. yeah. Okay, thank you. So Cornelius... Um, the reason it's a problem for Peter and Cornelius is now you're in an unclean house. Okay. And now Peter's unclean. So what do we do with that? That's really the issue with, with uh, Cornelius. Okay. So, so now we have this clear distinction between Peter is going to go to the circumcised, the Jews who are circumcised, and Paul is going to go to the uncircumcised Gentiles, which seriously, and, and now we have Peter and Paul kind of on these, these missionary tracks that are parallel, but to different audiences. And it's going to come together in verse 11. Okay, these two, these two missionaries are going to meet up in verse 11 and have a good old theological fight, which, you know, is fun. And the result of that fight is going to be one of the clearest proclamations of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have which is always the goal of a theological fight. There's one other thing that comes to mind because we just had about a week ago, the feast of St. Andrew, who is often referred to as the first home missionary, bringing his brother and, you know, Peter. And, yep. and, and then when Christ himself is preaching and he admits the, the Greeks, right? Mm -hmm. So, so there's already some precedent, I guess, during the ministry in the right, like right in front of Jesus Christ himself, uh, that, you know, I, I just, I, I find that juxtaposition sort of interesting that there would be a controversy like that when the apostles themselves had already admitted 
outsiders to the preaching of the Messiah. Well, there's even miracles. So, so they hear the healing of the Syrophoenician woman, um, the healing of the Canaanite woman, those kind of that story. Um, and, and then again, Elijah went to a widow outside of Israel. So it's one of these things that once Paul starts talking about this stuff and preaching it, they start rereading and going, oh, wait a minute, this is actually not weird. This is actually something that's been prophesied and practiced the entire time. Okay, remember, that's kind of Paul's point in all this. It's not that he's going to do something brand new, but that this has actually been the goal all along. Okay, so that is, that's a very good point too. All right, one more, then we'll be done. So who are the poor? So in verse 10, the end Kevin, of when I read that question. Yep. Kevin, when I read that question, I think of the Beatitudes, like blessed are the poor in spirit. There are people that are maybe feeling no hope, like they're in a hopeless situation. I don't know if that's correct, but that's what I think. Good, good. So bringing it back to Matthew chapter 5, the, the Beatitudes, which are the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, blessed are the, right? So blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the, and then you also have that again in Luke, where he says the same thing. And there he just says, blessed are the poor, which is fun. Um, so yeah, that's that's good. Um, that's an interesting, interesting linking those together. What we know from this passage and the rest of Paul's ministry is these are actually people that are physically poor. So um, what you're going to read in the rest of Paul's letters is that he keeps talking about this collection that he's going to take up for the poor saints in Jerusalem. So Paul's ministry is actually marked by this continued collection of money to bring back to Jerusalem to feed the poor saints, the, the, the members of the church in Jerusalem who are poor. And, and it's really, I mean, I like that reading. I really do. Um, but we also know that this was actually a collection to help feed people or whatever they needed money for. Um, so you'll read this throughout Paul's letters is he'll say, now I'm coming. And when I come, I'm going to pick up what you've collected for the poor and I'll bring it back to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, sometimes he says, even if you don't trust me, you can appoint people to walk with me because you're going to give me so much money. You're going to think I'm going to run off with it. Right. Now that's a way to get a good offering to say, I know you're going to give me so much money. You're not going to trust me with it. So you can send your own envoy if you want, because it's going to be such an overwhelming offering plate, right? In my church, we have like four ushers because they're so afraid of how much money is going to be in there that someone's going to run off with it, right? Although now because of COVID, we just, we just put the tray up there and you just kind of walk up and throw it in hope, right? We, Robert and I haven't made it in the offering plate in like six weeks. We just throw it and we're like, I don't know, whatever. God will take what he wants, right? We don't know. This is sort of an interesting inversion, too, of the idea of the home church. I mean, even in our days, you know, when we plant churches, we're like, oh, yeah, the home church, you know, this is where it's all at. This is where we've got the money. We're going to give you out the, you know, the pre, we're going to send you the preacher. We're going to send you the vicar. We're going to send you the money to start you up. But this is interesting because the church where the all the important guys are, are actually sort of languishing in a little bit of poverty just due to socioeconomic things. And I think we sometimes tend to get tied to our buildings or our towns or wherever we are. And I, I just find the you know, as, as this idea of taking a, essentially a perpetual collection from the surrounding regions um, is, is kind of humbling. And I think it's maybe instructive to us also, even in our modern times. That's right. So, so what you're saying is those of us who work at the International Center, bring us money. 
Give us lots of money. No, I'm just don't bring it. Or, or even like uh, even the context of the United States where we're like, yeah. oh, yes, we're all Christians here. When actually, no, you know what? Out in Africa, man, they've got like millions of people there. They do. They do. And it's, it's kind of cool. Um, so but, but one thing I do want to bring up in this is in all this discussion is that when you read about the church serving the poor in the New Testament, it is the church. It's not serving the poor in general on the streets. It's the church serving the poor in the church. And this is something that, that you and I need to do a better job of is making sure that we are taking care of the people in our church. Let's make sure that we are making, that we are meeting the needs of the people in our churches. If, if somebody in your church is sick or needs something, it's the body of Christ who should be coming alongside them and saying, what can we do to help you out? Right. This is something that we need to do. I need to do a better job of is making sure that I care for the people that I go to church with on Sunday. And that's, um, that's really something that I need to do a better job of doing and seeing this all as, as the body, right? As the body, this is my family that I get to take care of. So let's, let's work on that too. As, as much as we work on concentrating on doctrine and, and saying the right thing, let's also make sure that we're, we're, we're caring for the poor or whatever the case may be in our congregations. And as Paul says, the very thing I was eager to do. So I think it's just a reminder to all of us to, to do that. I have one just brief question. I know we're a little bit over time here, but specifically regarding the Missouri Synod. Um, I mean, I know we have an excellent, excellent deaconess program and deaconesses are specifically, you know, mercy and, and this, this sort of thing. Uh, I know that typically when we send men to seminary, they are on track to be pastors or to go into the holy ministry. Do we, as a synod, do we have deacons like who specifically are the, the male analog to deaconesses? We do have some, um, some, de some districts actually have deacon programs where uh, you can be trained to, to serve your congregation as a deacon. As a matter of fact, I have a relative who is a deacon right now, um, was just um, consecrated into the office of deacon at his local congregation and went through kind of a, a district slash synod coursework where he learned some theology and learned some, some care ministry kind of stuff. So we do have some districts and some opportunities to to be trained as lay deacons okay so it's kind of a step above an elder as far as training would go but it's not ordained in the holy ministry so yeah we do but it's not as it's not as prominent and as and as well known as the deaconess program which is actually run through our universities and our seminaries so yeah some places yep very good I know it's over time, so I will let people go that need to go. And then if you want to stick around and answer questions, I'm here. So let's, let's pray. And then you guys can go. And then, uh, like I said, I'll stick around for a little bit. So let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we're once again amazed that in all of this history and all of this working out the church and, and doctrine and, and the poor and all these different things, it's all done because of your love for us in Jesus Christ, that we rejoice to be called part of this amazing body of Christ, the church, part of this amazing story of your love for this world. And we pray that somehow through our lives that you would be glorified. That in all that we say or do tomorrow, those that we say and do it with would see your glory, would rejoice in your love in Jesus Christ. So we pray this night that you would also give us a quiet rest, for we know that we are yours and that we rest in your loving arms. In Jesus' name. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin.
You're welcome. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good, Good evening. Night. Thanks, Gib. Good night. Good night. Kevin, got a question? Yep. Yep. Go ahead. Is uh, when you were talking about you know the the brothers of uh, Jesus, yep. and it also says sister. To me, I mean that's that's pretty. In in the people that don't are, is there other scripture or? I guess I, that'd be the wrong thing. Well, how do they get around that? I can see where using brother sometimes you could you could have some leeway there on what they're really saying. But when they say sister, that's pretty obvious to me. Is there another yeah. translation? It, are all Bibles going to have sister in it? Or not? I guess you would know that. So, I mean, so the Greek where word. Where do people get that? It's the same Greek word for both brothers and sisters. One's just a feminine form, one's an, a masculine form. So. It's Say both it over. Adelphos and Adelphe, which are both, it's the same word. Um, it just means male or female sibling. Oh. Um, so yeah, it, it'll translate it. However it translates brother, it'll translate the same thing for sister. Um, so so the people who, who want to preserve the perpetual virginity of Mary will suggest that all these verses should be translated as either cousins or, like I said, children of Joseph um, from a different mother. Um, and it, nothing impious for Joseph. They would they would say that he was a widower and that these were children of a previous marriage. Well, wouldn't you think that that it, that would be a very important observation? I would think. Wouldn't you think that would be mentioned in Scripture someplace? Or? I'm not the best person to ask because I kind of I'm convinced the natural reading of Scripture is that these are brothers and sisters. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the people that I know, like I said, one of my best friends is a is a very staunch um, perpetual perpetual virginity of mary guy and he just says it's it's cousins they're all they're all jesus's cousins and they were just so close they just called it like brothers and sisters but it meant cousins. Yeah. and there there is some greek literature where the word brother obviously means cousin um but but whether or not the gospel writers would have consist i mean the problem we really have with that idea is that if there is one instance where Jesus was mentioned having a brother and you can say, well, it meant cousin. Okay, fine. But why in every single instance in the entire New Testament are they called his brothers and sisters? And at no point are they called his cousins, right? Or relatives. They're actually called brothers and sisters. So again, I, I, I am very comfortable saying that the most natural reading of the New Testament is that Jesus had brothers and sisters in the way that you would think um the other thing that that i i um i i think that we want to affirm that god's gift of marriage includes um the the righteous act of of procreation within marriage and to say that joseph and mary were fully married and joseph was a righteous man but then they refrain from that and, you know, forever. Right. It kind of makes you question what you're saying about the rightness of procreation within marriage. Does that make sense? Yeah. That also became a big issue in the Reformation too. Um, oh, and and actually, this whole idea of I, I don't know so much about perpetual virginity. I mean, yes, that and then Klaus of utero, which is sort of a technically separate thing. But uh, I think the other side, because I'm I'm sort of with you on this, but I've heard some you know pretty decent arguments, and and I kind of mentioned in the chat too, like you don't really want to die on this hill because you know, you could, you know, in good faith, read it either way. But 
It's also for certain faith traditions, like giving someone a drop of alcohol when it comes to Marian devotion and things like that. And yeah. I think even if, you know, even just for that, to hold that position, just to kind of, because it's, it's bad, that Marian devotion stuff, like it is deep and broad and it's unfortunate. It, it is. And it leads to a lot of, um, I'll just be blunt. In my mind, the, the danger of Mariology is not the worship of Mary. It's the denigration of Christ. And that's always my concern is not, boy, you like Mary too much. I, I don't care. It's, it's that Jesus is the one the New Testament teaches as being the one that we worship, the one we pray to, the one we look to for salvation, the one in whom we hope. And, and I don't want to denigrate that at all. That's, it's the focus on Christ that is essential in all this. Um, so whenever we talk about Mary, we want to talk about her in a way that we, we honor God's choice to use her as the virgin mother of Jesus. We certainly want to honor that and praise God for that and rejoice in his choice and in her willingness to serve in that role, as we read in Luke. Um, but we don't want to go beyond that. The worship and the honor and the glory goes to Jesus Christ alone. And it's just like, you know, my kind of slightly humorous, I think John is the best apostle and what John says goes and he's the best guy, but I don't actually worship John, right? I, I mean, come on. John would come over here and slap me in the face if I worshiped him. He would hate that, right? So, so that's kind of the same thing I think with Mary is that, yes, she is the blessed virgin mother of our, of our Lord. And we should honor her for that and, and praise God for the way he worked through her. But come on, that, that's it. That's it. Same, I would say the same thing with the Apostle Paul. I, I praise God for the Apostle Paul. I love the Apostle Paul. I, I spend a lot of my life reading Paul's writings in, in Greek and English and teaching them. But in no way, shape, or form do I worship the Apostle Paul or think he's worthy of worship. He is a sinner, just like me, who has the same Savior as I do. And that for that, I rejoice. So I think that's what I would say with the whole Mary issue. And then... Um, you want to make sure your reading of scripture is driving your doctrine and not the other way around. I think similarly relevant to tonight, there's also the, uh, the situation with apostolic succession, which is, which is uh -huh. sort of relevant to what we read about tonight in Galatians, which is um, not only Roman, but even there are some Lutherans who, uh, particularly Europeans, I think have, have kind of uh, latched onto this. And while we can't really tell them, well, you know, it's nice that you have the ledger that goes back, 300 years or whatever, but I, I think that that becomes, you know, and, and that of course is the idea that kind of like what we were talking about earlier, where doctrine sort of takes a little bit of, a, I, I don't know, maybe that's not right to say, but a little bit of a backseat to the idea of who put his hands on whom in order to convey this thing. And it becomes in, in and I'm nobody, but it comes a, in my opinion, an albatross of like, you've, you've sub subordinated the gospel to who put his hands on whom and how can you prove that? Because what, you know, and, and in the same way where, you know, it's nice, like it's a nice thing and, you know, great, your parish has been around for a long time, but that's not, that's not the key thing. And what we want to say with that is the same thing we would say that just about anything else is that that's great. I mean, that, that's awesome that your church is 500 years old and you can trace your pastors back to, you know, the original Martin Luther and the, the holy and, and precious son of God, Martin Luther. But, but that actually doesn't do any stinking good. It, you know, and, unless what you're actually tracing is the history of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what matters is that we are tracing here 
that this congregation has proclaimed Christ for 200 years. That's what matters. And, it, and it's exactly what Paul is arguing in the New Testament is that you can trace your lineage back to Abraham. Who cares? That doesn't do anybody any good. You can trace your faith back to Abraham, that you believe in the same God who made the promises of Abraham, who kept the name of Jesus Christ. Now we're talking. Right. And that's the same thing I want to say of the apostolic succession is that it's it's not actually the physical man who can trace his lineage back. It's it's actually true apostolic succession is the gospel has been handed down to be proclaimed. And and this is Article 14 of the Oxford Confession, is that um, the way that we see apostolic succession happening is in the man who is rightly called to publicly preach the gospel and administer the sacraments, meaning that the doctrine has been handed down. Because what's happening, what happened in the Reformation is that um, the Roman Catholic Church said to the Lutherans, well, okay, you can have your little fun gospel-y thing over here. We just won't ordain any pastors, so you'll just die out. Right? Because the only way to ordain somebody is have a bishop do it. Well, only have a bishop is have the Catholic Church say this is the bishop who's allowed to do it. You can't, the paperwork doesn't work, right? You got, you can't file the paperwork. You're, you're kind of stuck. And so the Catholics said to Lutherans, we just won't ordain any pastors and you'll just die out. The Augsburg Confession Article 14 said, it's not about who you are, right? It's not about the paperwork. It's about the gospel. And the people who are going to ordain our pastors are the people who are going to ordain them into the holy ministry of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the succession that we're looking at. That's the apostolic succession we care about, is that what the apostles gave to us, the words of the Holy Scripture, we're going to pass on, and that's going to be what marks us as the church. Back to something that you wrote on the board a little bit earlier, just in, in line with this, and I don't know how much time we can beg of you tonight, but um, you know, where you had written about the, and I can't remember, I think it was when we were talking about Paul and, and Peter and, and um, James and that, but you had said, you'd said uh, you know, God, the Father, and then the arrow down to Jesus, and then the arrow down, I think, to the, the church, I think, and then you went to the pastor. Just on this topic of, of especially with the reformers, there, there's a really fascinating, and I don't know if anybody here is really into listening to, to podcasts or whatever, but KFUO has a really great program called Concord Matters. And last October, they talked about that exact thing that Dr. Kevin, that you were just talking about, which is when the reformers were like, okay, we, you know, here we are, are we even part of the church anymore? Cause Rome was like, nope, you're cut off. You're not part of the mother church. You're, you're out, like you said, and you'll just, you know, die out. And they had to figure out, are, are we the church? Yeah. Do we know? And, and, and as it related to that line, one of the things that came up to in, in Concord Matters, which I thought was absolutely like critical and key and fascinating about, about ecclesiology in general is that in the Lutheran reckoning, um, you know, and, and of course it'll start from, from the father into the son. But what they said was that the, our reckoning of ecclesiology in the church actually starts with sacraments, with word and sacraments. And from there, the church is defined by the people who are gathered around the sacraments. Like that is what institutes the church. And then from there you have your congregations and from there you have pastors and, you know, it, and it all comes from that as opposed to the Roman Catholic reckoning, which says, well, the bishop, you know, the bishop defines and, and, the, and the magisterium and they define the, I mean, basically they define the word and they define the sacraments and it's the church is kind of the top, the top level of this. And so the reformers kind of had to, like you're saying in, in uh, Augsburg 14, and they kind of had to come up with 
you know, are, are we the church? And, and they, and they did. And I think in a really great and really profound way that I think is important to us. And in the history of the Missouri Synod, they had to do it again uh, when they came to America and they sent Bishop Stephen across the river and they're like, okay, we just sent our Bishop. Are we still the church? And, and they right. did it again. And I find that there's a really fascinating echo there from the Reformation to the American establishment of, of the Missouri Synod in particular in the United well, States. Well, that's what the Altenburg debates are about. And that's really why CFW Walther became um, CFW Walther for us, is that he was the one who, he was just a pastor. He was just a pastor dude that came from Germany, right? And our bishop messed up. We sent him over to Illinois, which is what we do with all the things we don't want anymore, right? So that's, that's the point to send it over to Illinois who cares and and so the question was exactly is should we go back to Germany because we're not the church anymore and they actually said I don't know and so they said let's study this and Walther did he sat down with his 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 Luther and his scriptures not in that order the scriptures and his Luther and he read them and he said the church is defined by the presence of the preaching of the true gospel and the administration of the sacraments if we have those things, we are the church. What, and that was the establishment of the Missouri Synod as a church body in America was this confession that the church is defined by the actual word and sacraments of God and not by an attachment to a hierarchy. And I asked President Harrison, he said, I'm allowed to say that. So uh who who was it is is it i don't know if it was augustine or somebody had and i've and i've tried to find this and i can't find it maybe you're familiar with it but there's this and i think it was from one of the early church fathers i think before the the you know the eighth or ninth century where somebody talked about um having the the scenario of two two men shipwrecked and they're the only survivors and they they what is it one ordains the other one baptizes one and the other ordains the other or something like that are you familiar with that yeah is it cyprian Something like that. I couldn't. I can never find it when I'm searching it. But I think it's really about the important. Church. Um, yeah, and and so um, yeah, there's just a lot you can do with ecclesiology because what you want to do is all your ecclesiology needs to be rooted in the work of Jesus Christ and not the establishment of men and systems that we make up. So even the idea of one baptizing another, they ordaining another. Well, it okay. It the point is that they're in Christ, and and. Um, my ecclesiology is really rooted in the cross of Christ so that I truly believe that the, the true church is the actual body of Christ. And um, that means that the presence of the Christ can be marked or the presence of the church can be distinguished by the, the, the teaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel and the administration of sacraments according to Christ's own institution. And that that's, that's where you say, yeah, that's the church. And then we acknowledge along with that, that there are other doctrines in this, in this revelation that God would have us to teach as well. Right. So we don't reduce it, but that is, that is the, the definition of the church. And then we, we go out from there and we say, okay, now Luther has seven marks of the church. And we look at those marks of the church, part of which is off of the Holy ministry, but part of also, which is persecution. Okay. So we look at those, um, but we really grow from the gospel as the definition of the church. Thank you, appreciate okay. it. Welcome. Kevin, has anybody worshiped Paul in history? Made Paul, elevated Paul to, uh, you know, some kind of special status that you know? Occasionally, yeah. 
Um, I mean, you have it in the book of Acts where both Peter and Paul are worshipped. Um, but, but as far as a figure, no, because Paul, if you read Paul, you cannot walk away worshiping Paul. It's just not possible. This is the problem with Mary is we don't have anything written by her. So we can kind of just make stuff up. It's really hard to worship the apostles because if you read the apostles with any integrity, you're like, these guys would be so upset if I, <laughs> I mean, these guys are clearly wanting me to worship Jesus. With Mary, we're just literally making stuff up. That's kind of the issue. And the same thing with the saints, right? We can just make up all the stuff about the saints and say, you should do this. Well, it's, it's not in scripture. So you're just, you're just, it's a free for all. But when you read the actual apostles, there's no way you can walk away worshiping them. Yeah. I, I Some people accuse Lutherans of worshiping Paul. Yeah. Well, what it seems like it seemed like a lot of the Roman responses, Paul, you know, the Reformation, Paul was absent in their responses. A lot of them seem that way. Yeah. Maybe I, um, maybe I haven't read enough of them, but. Well, I, I think the accusation is accurate. And I think we need to, to wrestle with it sometimes is that, Lutherans are obsessed with Paul um, as though he's the only scripture that was written. And we need to make sure that we're not um, getting our scriptures out of whack. We do sometimes. Um, that's kind of the Lutheran heresy is that sometimes Paul trumps Jesus and we don't want to do that. Um, but, you know, that's, that's part of, that's part of the continued journey of, of doing this together is to, is to make sure that, the gospels are the life of Christ and we treasure those as the revelation of God in the flesh and the kingdom of the kingdom of God. And Paul is the inspired word that explains what did that perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension and second coming, what does that mean? And how do we, how do we kind of theologize about that? Obviously when I say Paul, I'm also including first Peter and first John, those kinds of books. Um, but yeah, we, we don't want to get to where, you know, Paul is the only thing we believe, and we're all of a sudden we're a sect, where we're the Pauline sect. That'd be bad. Like, like were Paul, was Paul crucified for you? Exactly. And then Paul himself says, "Paul's nothing, right? I, I'm nothing. I, I can't help you." And that's exactly why I say any good reading of Paul, you can't worship Paul. He just he rejects it out of hand. Thank you. Yep. Which I would which I would submit is actually one of the marks of a pastor. If your pastor says, dude, if you don't listen to me, you're going to hell. He's not your pastor. Get rid of him. Kick him out. Because the only thing that matters is Christ crucified. And, and you, that's what a pastor should be all about, is proclaiming Christ and him crucified. And, and really nothing else. That's all that matters. So that's my ecclesiology. <laughs> it works. Thank yeah. you, gentlemen. I appreciate it very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Good to see you. Likewise. Good one. All right. Anybody else? Any other questions? Thoughts? I just, I'm really busy. <laughs> so I'm, I'm excited about my video project that I'm doing with the Landolfi Quartet and yeah. working with a really good filmer and I get to do all the editing and I know which shots I want and what close-ups I want. And so that's really exciting. And that's great. I have that on my mind, but of course I do have spiritual questions too, but they're kind of like, uh, you know, yeah. they're, they're there, but you know, um, but yeah, that's, that's about it. Um, that's all I wanted to say, just update you guys. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. That's exciting. 
it's exciting. very exciting. Yeah. Hopefully we get to see it one of these days. Yeah. I'd love to yeah, show that'd be totally cool. So that's great. Well, Tom, you know where I am. Anytime if you one of those questions percolates up. Okay. You know where I am. Yep. Anytime. Thank you. Always happy to hear it from you. Yep. That's great. I'm really glad to, I'm excited about that project for you. That's that is fun. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. And maybe if I get the skills, and I do, I think I'll after this, I'll have the skills to go to one of the, lo the local orchestras and offer them to film their concert and cool. for their budget. You know, I'm not as expensive as this guy, but who, who we're hiring to film, but he's teaching me a lot of stuff and we're hitting it off well. So I would personally, like I got the idea yesterday of I could become a music filming person for orchestras because I'm a musician and I know what where the camera needs to be and when. And now I have these video editing skills that this passionate guy I'm working with is helping me out with. So using final cut pro no davinci resolve davinci resolve yeah good yeah he and yeah. i both happen to use that because so, he's obsessed with color and davinci uh -huh. has those color wheels on it yep. so <laughs> yeah that final resolve cut pro is good i've used it before yep have you yeah, i've used both um nice yeah we we when we do a lot of our missionary visits and we do a lot of filming there sometimes on the on the field we're editing on the fly and stuff so i've, I've cool. played Oh. Cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Did you enjoy, do you enjoy doing that or do you work with editing? And I don't do much of it. I'm not very good at it. I pretty much do a little bit here and there, but the guys that I, I go with are, are much better at it. So I kind of step back and go, wow, that's, that's impressive. That's yeah. <laughs> I, given, I don't have to get in trouble. I'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> you've given, now you've given me the idea if, if some church like St. Paul de Pere once uh-huh streaming thing or a filming thing i could i could then there's there's a lot out there a lot of people <laughs> yeah. with the video, so. i don't know in this age yeah. of covid where there's a lot of more need for streamed music it might yeah there are there's That's a lot out there so it's a good skill <laughs> yeah. to get i mean it's a good skill to have yeah it's really good that's great glad to yeah. hear it it's been so good to oh, see our people uh, what's that do it i was gonna say it's been so good to see our people doing you know multimedia projects and audio projects and video projects in particular even if they're not necessarily you know, church, churchy type projects, but it's been really great during this time where technology has been more important to see us sort of rising to that occasion. Yep. 